0: Thanks, Danae. I'm down here. Those of you in the back, fine with this? Okay. Okay. Good. Good. I'm Canadian, at least in my spirit. I'm actually a dual citizen, but being a Canadian, I feel very uncomfortable with anything nice said about me, as we Canadians are. We don't. We have an inferiority complex. I don't know if you've heard the joke about four people. There were four different nationalities walking along, and they saw an elephant for the first time. There was an Italian, a German, an American, and a Canadian, and they all see the elephant for the first time, and the Italian goes, mamma mia, what a beautiful creature. I think I'll paint it. The German goes, what a magnificent creature. I think I'll write a two-volume work on the philosophical foundations of the elephant. The American says, whoa, what a creature. I wonder how I can make some money. Then they look around and the Canadian's gone. They go looking and they find the Canadian over in the corner standing there saying, I wonder what the elephant thinks of me. So that's the difficulty we have as Canadians with any kind of introduction. <laughs> um, the, I want to share before I begin a story. I don't know if you know this, but MTC, which is a part of the Surge Network, has a partnership with two different groups, the Reformed Church in Hungary, and also a very large, one of the largest church planting networks in the world in Brazil. And what I do is I go there two times a year in Hungary and Brazil, and it's, it's a part of our partnership, and I spend time with, it was supposed to be 15, then it went to 20, then it, was, then it went to 25, and now it's up to 30 in both places younger leaders who they want to form for the future. And I spend a week with them in seminars sharing uh, what we're doing at MTC. I'm just back from Brazil, so I'm very tired. I hope I can manufacture the energy. But I'm back from Brazil, and I told this story about two or three years ago, but I heard it again from the leading, one of the leading scholars in Brazil, a scholar who works often in the Amazon and he's translated certain languages into writing, and then the whole Bible into that language. He's done it five times. I can't imagine doing once. He's done it five times. And he did it for the first time in a small tribe in Africa. And I'd love to tell you the whole story of how that tribe came to Christ. It's an incredible story. But In any case, they decided after the Bible had been translated to have this Uh, service of celebration for for, uh, having the Bible now in their own language. And they decided that they were going to give it to the first convert who was an older man and if I remember right, was a wicked fellow and I can't remember exactly what he did but maybe it's just... But he was a pretty bad fellow but he was the first one to come to Christ and started leading others to Christ. He's just died two years ago apparently and this man was going to be presented with the first Bible. And in this celebration, he comes walking down the middle aisle, trembling and weeping uncontrollably. And he gets to the front, and he holds out his hands. Then he says, I don't know if I can hold this Bible. His hands were shaking. And he just says, and I would never want to drop God's word. So the elders, two of the elders, came up alongside of him. They took, they reached under his hands and they said, We'll help you hold. And I've heard that story. Every time I hear it, it actually brings tears to my eyes because I just think here was a tribe that has nothing the Bible. They have no other literary tools. We have so many versions of the Bible. We have so many tools. We have so much and i wonder how many of us have that same incredulity we have god's word in our hands it's an incredible story for me and it reminds me every time i i've heard it now 3 times speaker every time i hear it i'm shaken and i've asked myself do i love god's word like that even though i've devoted my life to studying it and so forth, do I start taking it for granted because I have so many tools, because I have so many resources to study the Scriptures? I hope that we will realize what an incredible privilege we have to have God's Word in our language, God, the Spirit speaking to us, revealing Christ, speaking as we listen. I want to start with uh, a story that I start with I, I love this story because it gets us so well into what I want to say. And that is about almost 36 years ago, my wife went into labor to have our first child. And as she was about, as she went into labor, we had done everything to practice. I was going to be there helping her. Of course, the man does most of the work. The woman just delivers the baby. So I was going to be there helping her, doing all that work and we get into the delivery room and all of a sudden very quickly of this doctor who is one of the leading doctors actually in the city starts to panic the doctor panics that's not good news he called another of his colleague and the two of them were working away the second guy panics that's even worse news and then they said let's get her to surgery so they put her Move, her, move Marnie onto to a bed with wheels and take off down to the surgery. And they don't say anything to me, but the nurse realizes I'm still standing there. And she says, you go wait in the waiting room. So I went and waited in the waiting room. And for the next 15 minutes, I was in agony. Um, I won't tell you why. I won't tell you all the story. I was a fairly new Christian, but I was in agony. I thought God was maybe punishing me for my life, I had all kinds of strange, weird, and wrong ideas, but I suffered for the next 15 or so minutes. It felt like a lot longer. And all of a sudden, down at the end of the hall, I saw a nurse coming down with an incubator. She was walking towards me, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, so I'm the only one there. So I go walking down the hall to her, and she says, are you Mr. Goheen? And I kind of felt like, I think I am. I'm the only guy in the whole hospital right now. I didn't say that. I said, yes. And then she said, "Here, good news. Here is your baby daughter. Life is just fine. And I remember with tears in my eyes putting my hand through the holes. You know how that works? They still have those three, six years later, holes in the incubator where I could hold my daughter. I remember looking at her, and she even looked at me already And I remember holding her and just feeling those words, good news, flow over me. I still had my wife, had a baby daughter. Now, why do I tell you that story? The reason I tell you that story is because a very similar story took place approximately 200 years before Jesus in a Greek city-state, I believe it was, and... But it's slightly different in that it was a home delivery, a home birth, and the midwife breaks in to the room next door where the husband is pacing after a complication and says, "Good news: your son has been born, healthy, and your wife is fine." And when he does that, or when sorry, when the midwife does that, she used the word that Jesus used whoops. She used the word Jesus used because she spoke Greek. Use the word Jesus did in Mark one fourteen and fifteen, when he said this. When Mark says this, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. That's the word she used. It's the word euangelion, from which we get the word evangel, uh, evangelistic, uh, van, evangelical, evangelism. All those words come from this Greek word euangelion. And it says, proclaim the euangelion, the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus announces. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And he says the word again, and believe the good news. Now, it's very interesting to look at translations, but there's a lot of translations here that will use the word gospel. And the word gospel is an old English word, I don't know if you know that, and it, 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 which simply was good news in old English. It came from two words that were used in the medieval period in the English language, goad, which was now turned into good, and spell which was the English word for news. And so goad spell was now, came in to mean gospel. And I fear that maybe what has happened, and it's interesting to notice, I use the NIV, and as I use the NIV to see how they go back and forth between good news, gospel, good news. And one of the concerns I have is that the word gospel has come to take on a meaning of almost something like religious doctrine. Possible. Sounds heavy, doesn't it? Possible. And yet, the word in Greek that Jesus uses is the word that was used all the time for good news. In fact, another use of that word was good news, the price of anchovies has come down. Evangelion, the price of anchovies has come down. Good news. We've won the battle. Good news. It was used all the time as good news. It was a very simple word for good news. And when Jesus says good news, he's not saying gospel. I've got some religious teaching for you. Put on your thinking cap. I'm going to proclaim the gospel. He says, I've got good news. And he expected people that were listening respond like I did when I heard that nurse say good news. He expected people to go, oh, that really is good news. Or, it's not true, and I reject it. But if you believe it, that you hear it not as this heavy doctrine, heavy moral teaching, heavy heavy theological content, you hear the language of good news. And when Jesus speaks this, did you ever notice this? He doesn't stop like any good theologian. This is how we make our money. He doesn't stop and say, let me tell you what the good news is. Footnote one. Good news is, and he gives a nice long definition of good news. That's what any good theologian does. That's how you you write your books. That's how you make your money. You give long definitions. He does not stop and say good news. Oh, What I mean by this is definition, and he moves on. The assumption is that every single person listening would know exactly what he meant, exactly what he meant, and would either respond to him, nonsense. You're not preaching the good news of the kingdom. I don't believe you. Or, wow, really? It's really come? You see, there was a sharing among the Jewish listeners when Jesus made that announcement of what this good news was. Now, Jesus is going to correct a great deal of their thinking, but he starts with this common understanding. You see, the two books that were read most often during this time period the Jews knew these books backwards and forwards and if you understand this you're going to see these books even when they're not quoted permeate the New Testament because the Jews have almost memorized these books. The two books are the book of Daniel and the book of Isaiah chapter 40 through 55 and maybe on to 66, but mainly 40 to 55 and both of those were written to a people in exile. And the book of Daniel is speaking to, the, is speaking to a community that is in exile, and Daniel is there in Babylon, and it talks about that one day the kingdom was going to come, and all the kingdoms of this world, yes, there's two visions given, were going to be torn down and destroyed, and the kingdom of God was going to fill the earth. And Babylon was one of the first of those kingdoms, and it was going to be followed by Medo-Persia, and it was going to be followed by um, uh, Greece. And then what was, then it was going to be followed by Rome. And Rome was called the beastly empire in, 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 in the book of Daniel. And the Jews were referring the, this to the Rome as the beast. That's why you get that in the book of Revelation. And so they believed that the kingdom of God was going to come and it was going to destroy the other empires. The other book is Isaiah 40 through 55. It too is written to a people in exile and it begins with comfort, comfort ye my people. And then it goes on to say what God is going to do to liberate Israel from their exile and how the kingdom of God was going to come. And there are a number of times, I have never counted the number, but there are two specific texts where there is an image used that is likely stands behind these words. And that is an imagery, uh, image, I think it was Isaiah 52, where Israel is on the walls of Jerusalem. And they're looking out, and they're in exile, and they look out. And as they look out, they see a herald coming. And that herald is running as fast as he can And these watchmen begin to announce, here here he comes, and he comes into the city, and he announces, good news, God is king again. He's rolled up his sleeve. He's bared his mighty arm. I I used to be able to do that 10 years ago, but... There's not much of a mighty arm anymore. But God bears his mighty arm, and as he bears that mighty arm, he's going to save his people, and he's going to restore his rule over the entire creation. And when Jesus stands here, the assumption that many would have been listening, the ears the Jews would have been listening with, was this. Here is the herald that is announcing the good news of the kingdom. But we're not going to go into all of this. But he's going to very quickly be announcing something that is going to cause more and more people to reject him because he's going to say, I am the living God in the flesh, come to announce this kingdom. And more and more people are going to say, he's crazy, look at John 6. This guy's crazy and they're going to walk away. But he's announced here good news. God is restoring his rule over the entirety of the creation. Or another, what they would have heard was, God is coming back in power and love in the person of the Messiah who is me and by the power of the Spirit to restore the entirety of human life and the entirety of the creation to again live under the beneficent rule of God. That's what Jews would have heard when Jesus announced the good news. What the Romans would have heard, you see Mark, this is Mark, and Mark now is writing many years later, and the church has become more of a Gentile church. And when he uses this language and writes to the Roman Christians and Roman people and says, good news, the kingdom has come, those ears, those Roman ears, would have heard something else. And that's why I believe the word good news becomes so common in the New Testament. They would have heard what 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 had come to take place in the Roman Empire, where there was this Roman cult, where the Caesar was considered to be the son of God, and as the son of God, he had ushered in a worldwide kingdom in Rome of peace and justice, and that he and that the word evangelion, good news, was associated a lot in the common language with the Roman emperor. In fact, a short period of time probably around the time uh, the book of Mark was written, there was a public inscription and letter that was sent around the churches in Asia Minor. And they wanted to begin a new date. And they said, we want to now start a new calendar beginning on day one with the Caesar's birthday. And then they said, good news, this Caesar, Caesar Augustus, mentioned in Luke 2, this Caesar Augustus has ushered in a worldwide kingdom of peace and justice. He is the Son of God who has brought, who is now bringing His rule over the entire earth. Let's celebrate that with a new calendar beginning at the year zero. I don't think it ever passed, but the leaders tried to get that going. And so what they would be hearing is something radical. They would be hearing... These people living under the Roman Empire. Good news. It's not Caesar who is the ruler of all things. It's not Caesar who's the son of God. It's not Caesar who's ushered in this kingdom of peace and justice and is now ruling the earth. It's no one less than this man Jesus who walked around Galilee and did not look at all, did not look at all like the powerful Messiah, Pictured in the book of Isaiah. That's why so many heard this and said, This is nonsense. And he shows that the kingdom of God has come, especially through his deeds. And as he heals, he demonstrates and shows justice and shows mercy and compassion. He gives a window on the coming of the kingdom and says, When the kingdom comes fully, people will walk again, people will see, people will hear. I remember a man that was a quadriplegic, and I remember him well because my mother, I think, led him to Christ. And one time I was sitting with him, and he had trouble speaking because of the muscles, but he's an extremely intelligent man. And I remember him saying, Mike, when I get to the new creation, I'm going to run. I'm going to run. I remember thinking, I hate running. I do it almost every day, but I hate it. And I do it just because I don't want to be out of shape, look like a balloon. And so that's why I run. He couldn't wait. He couldn't wait. Sounds like Acts 3, doesn't it? The man who goes about leaping and praising God. And what, what happens is Jesus frees and liberates people from all kinds of things, from the guilt of their sin, from their disease, from bondage to Satan, and so much more. And he says, this is the power of God breaking into the world to bring the kingdom. And he says in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees and the leaders can't deny it, and they say, okay, you're doing all these powerful acts. In fact, you're acting by Satan. And Jesus kind of looks at them. I'm sure he kind of had this bemused look on his face. He says, that's kind of strange. You mean, I'm doing in the power of Satan to destroy my own kingdom? He says, no. He says, and this is Matthew 12:28, "If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom has come upon you." If you see the power, John the Baptist is rotting in prison, and he's wondering, "I know Isaiah well," he says. I know Isaiah 61 and many other places that say that the righteous prisoner is going to be liberated." What am I doing down here in jail, in the, in the cellar, listening to the party going on upstairs in Herod with Herod? And I'm the righteous prisoner. I'm not being released. Jesus says the kingdom's come. I'm down here. What's going on? Luke 7, he calls his disciples, sends them to Jesus and says, go ask Jesus, and I'm sure he said, and ask him politely, are you the one we should expect or should we look for somebody else? This doesn't look like the kingdom I was expecting when I announced it in Luke 3. They go to Jesus, and Jesus says, go back and tell John all that you see and hear. Go back and tell him the deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see, the sinner is forgiven. Go back and give all these signs that'll show God's power is broken in to heal the creation. Go back and tell John. And I'm sure they're going, right? And they're about to go up, and Jesus says, and one more thing. They turn back, and he says, and tell them this. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Because I don't look like what you're expecting in the kingdom of God. And so he begins to correct this and show that the Spirit of God has come. He's a work in power, healing. But then the oddest thing happens, and I don't think most of us even have a clue how odd this would have been. For Jew and Gentile, we get a picture of this in 1 Corinthians 1. An odd thing happens the worst capital punishment ever devised by human beings, the cross, where people are humiliated, tortured, and killed. We almost don't have a clue about it. If you're interested, there's a book by Martin Hengel that describes the crucifixion, all the places in the Roman literature outside of the Bible, and it's a disgusting, sickening act. In this disgusting, sickening act, Jesus submits himself. Now, no Jew is going to believe it. Now, no Roman is going to believe it. No king hangs naked, humiliated on the cross before the true Son of God, the Caesar, who has decreed his death. No one does that. And so, it can't be. It must, it must be all over. Look at 20, Luke 24. Those disciples, they're going back to Emmaus from Jerusalem. We thought he was the one who was going to liberate Israel. We don't know what's gone wrong. He was, missed. He, he was crucified. What's gone wrong? But then Jesus rises from the dead, and he appears to the disciples, and the resurrection would have been as confusing to the disciples as the crucifixion. If you don't believe me, go to Mark 9, verse 10, and Jesus says this. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be crucified and died, and then on the third day he will rise from the dead. The next verse says that the disciples were walking down the hill and said, to the, do you know what he's talking about? I haven't got a clue what he's talking about. What does it mean to rise from the dead? I haven't got a clue. What does he mean? This, shh, here he comes. Now, I just dramatized one verse that says, "They discussed among themselves what rising from the dead could possibly mean." It wasn't because they were a bunch of rationalists that didn't believe resurrection could take place. Everybody believed that. But the resurrection was going to be the end of history when the kingdom of God came fully, and they would be some would rise to life, some to death, but it would be the end of history, and everybody would rise. What does it mean for a man to rise from the dead in the middle of history? And no doubt, I agree with the scholars who say Paul struggles in his 13 letters in the New Testament with what to make of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And as he comes to this, these conclusions by the Spirit of God, his letters are full of this. That in the cross, the end... Of the, of the old age dominated by sin. It's been done away with once and for all. It's the victory has been gained over Satan, over sin, over all the demonic powers, over death, and over everything that has come because of human sin. That's what they believed about the resurrection. And so as Jesus announces that this new day has come with a cross doing away with the old and the resurrection was the inauguration of the new creation that one day was going to fill the entire earth. Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and the rest of us are going to follow him in this, and he has inaugurated and begun the new creation, the kingdom of God, that is one day going to be, fill the entire earth. And so God's kingdom has arrived in Jesus. It's been inaugurated in the resurrection but it doesn't come fully. There's a delay, and that delay allows the mission of the church. He sends them out, but he promises, one day I'm coming back to finish what I began. When I come back, that resurrection life that you now see in me is going to be the resurrection life of the entire creation. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? You know, when you announce that good news to people who are sick, pain, people who are struggling with addiction, people who are overwhelmed, that's such good news. And some of us whose lives are pretty comfortable, it's hard to hear the good news as powerfully as perhaps Jesus meant it when he announced it. The good news was that in Jesus by the power of the Spirit, the kingdom of God was now filling the earth. He was restoring all of human life and all of creation to again live under his rule and restore the creation to what it was meant to be in the beginning. That's the good news. That is not gospel, but good news. What is it? Let me give you a summary. If I can get this to work. Well, it works very quickly. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom at the end of history is breaking into the middle of history. It's the climactic moment in a long story. It's always according to Scripture that the gospel comes. It's news about the goal of the history of the world and all its people that has now arrived. It's the good news about the restoration of all of human life in the context and in the midst of the entire creation. Romans 8 says the non-human creation is groaning in bondage. And it cannot wait to be liberated along with the people of God when they are liberated in the resurrection. It, too, is going to be liberated. It's about the restoration of all of human life in the context of the non-human creation. And it's about the arrival in Jesus, especially in His death and resurrection, and then His gift of the Spirit. That is good news. That's good news. Now, that good news means this. If you have heard the good news, even if perhaps you haven't fully understood it, and nobody does, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to understand the gospel. And uh, you'll never get there. I've been trying to understand it for 35 years, and I've been devoted to it as an academic, and I still struggle, what is this good news? And my vision of the gospel gets bigger and bigger. And so as you struggle with this, one of the things, if you have embraced Christ... And you have heard what the words that follow in Matthew 1. The next verse says, Repent and believe the good news. Come and follow me. And if you've heard those, good, those words, repent, believe the good news, come and follow me, then the Spirit has been given and you've begun to share in a foretaste, in foretaste fashion, something of that kingdom banquet is coming fully. And if it is true, and it's possible to deny the gospel, of course, people can say, this is nonsense. Or they can reduce it to a little bit of a religious message that's good for you but not for me. But if this is true, and that the center of all of history is God revealing Himself and restoring the creation, if that is true, and you're probably here because you believe it, if that's true, then you are immediately invited in to a big story, a story that began way back in creation, a story where God's very good creation was messed up by sin and its effects, a story where God appoints Israel as a people to embody the good news that, and the promise that God was to restore the creation and their failure. The good news being fulfilled in the representative of Israel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then the sending of the church to make known in life, word, and deed that good news with a promise that Christ will return. That story claims to be nothing less than the true story of the world. And the gospel does nothing less than invite us into that story. And so to believe the good news is not to be left with, okay, now I'm going, now I'm Ready for my next stage of life in the resurrection? No, it means being called into this big story. Now, I want to now move from the gospel to try to open up what I mean by this, because this is the most important thing. As you begin reading the drama scripture, you've probably done that already, as you begin reflecting on this, the question is why is this so important? Why is this so important? It's so important. Because our lives will be shaped, it's not a matter of if, they will be shaped by some story, it's just a matter of which story. Is it the story of the Bible, or will it be a story of our culture, shaped by idolatry? Those are the choices. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of which story will shape our lives. Now, I don't know if you've seen this, di- this little thing, this little picture I used it in the first version of drama. We now use a second version, so less and less of you will know it, and that's just great. I've started, I've used this now for 20-some years. I use it quite accidentally in a lecture when somebody asked me to explain what I meant by, shut your eyes, if you, ears if you don't want to hear a big word, what I meant by meta narrative, And I expl- tried to explain a big, grand story that's true, and they said, well, what do you mean? And I used this illustration, and it worked so well, I thought I'd keep working with it. I'm not very imaginative. I use illustrations at work and I stick with them because I'm boring and unimaginative. But this has worked very well and I've used it all the way from high school kids up to academics where we discuss, discuss narrative on a much more theoretical basis. Now, the fox compliments the crow and says, my, you have a lovely voice. Won't you sing me a song? What's the meaning of that event? How many of you know Okay, normally when I do that, I say, you can't play. The rest of you, tell me. And you come up with imagination. Now, we're not going to do that tonight. But I have had a lot of fun, especially with 18-year-old first-year university students who'd rather be anywhere but in my class. And I start with this, and I ask them, what does this mean? The first answer I get every time is, the fox wants to eat the crow. It's the first answer I get every time then I rebuke them for being so cynical. And then I say, what if the fox is a Christian fox? And then they say, well, maybe he has a spiritual gift of encouragement. He knows this crow is ugly. He knows that this crow has a loud, obnoxious, Craw! that's anything but beautiful. And so this fox knows that. And maybe the fox is encouraging this poor... Have you ever met somebody that encourages you and you start to say, I don't believe you anymore. You encourage so much that I think you're fake. I've met somebody like that recently. All they did was encourage, encourage, encourage. I started thinking, I don't believe him anymore. Because he's always, always saying... So. Anyway, maybe that fox has got this problem. All he can do is encourage. He can't say anything negative. Or maybe the fox is a tone-deaf choir director. And he's in the forest. He's starting to, to, to uh, do a choir. Or maybe, and this is the one I've heard from two young men in high school or 18-year-old or so, they say, maybe the fox is hard up for a date. And then I realized that they are probably projecting. <laughs> and they're probably saying more about themselves what, than what they see. Because, in fact, I don't, use, I don't speak of the crow as a female. And I don't speak of the fox as a male. In the, original, in the original story, they're both its. At least that's a very safe way anyway. And so I, I never refer in that way. So when they say that, I kind of chuckle and think, okay, that's what they're seeing. Now, we could go on and on, and come up with the strangest ideas, and I've had so much fun with this, getting people to come up with, what is the meaning of this event? Is it a way on one end that all he can do is encourage, or is it on the other end that he wants to eat the poor crow? Or is it something in between? What's the meaning of this event? The only way you can know is by knowing the story and the narrative that surrounds this event. The crow sits perched high in a tree with a piece of cheese or meat. It's told different ways. I'm not sure what the original is, in its mouth. And the various animals of the forest use various methods to get this because of the famine. The fox compliments the silly crow, and it opens its mouth. And when he opens its mouth, the meat falls out, and the fox grabs it and runs away. This is an Aesop's fable, in case you're interested. And an Aesop's fable always ends with some moral, and the moral of the story is don't be deceived by flattery. Now, how do you know what the meaning of this event is? You know, see the red X in the middle, the big red X in the middle, because this event is placed in a narrative context. A narrative context. You need the story. Once upon a time, there was a tone-deaf choir director who decided to start a choir in the forest, and the story goes on. It means one thing. Once upon a time, this fox was a silly fox and loved to encourage everybody and everything for no reason. The story would mean something else. Once upon a time, there was a famine in the forest and a fox was hungry, it means another thing. In other words, the story that surrounds the event is what gives meaning to that event. And in a course I taught for about two decades in the university... I would start this way, especially in the last p- latter part of my career when I was speaking to students who were paying the biggest price for university education you could imagine, the most expensive university in Canada. And I would say to them, what are you thinking? You're going to get a mortgage, a debt the size of a mortgage by the time you get to your degree. Are you crazy? What are you doing here? And they kind of looked back at me like, I thought he wanted us here. And I did. But I was trying to get them thinking. And they'd be looking back and saying, you should know. You should know why all of us are here. We're here to get a degree because a degree will get us a job. And a job will help us make money. and And I say, right. That's what the university has been for the last 30 or so years. Before that, another narrative. Before the consumer narrative was shaping it, another narrative was shaping it. And if you keep going back to the time of the beginning of the university, different narratives have given meaning, different meaning to why one goes to university. And so I'm saying, you are assuming a story as soon as you answer that question. And the reality is, all of our lives are going to be shaped by some story, some understanding of where the world begins or some understanding of where the history is going. Some understanding of the meaning of this world that is moving towards that goal that gives meaning to our lives. Usually a narrative where there's conflict and resolution. And we all know what a story is. But is this really true? Is it true that the world is like this? I, would want, to, I want to argue, there we go, that it is, and I want to spend the time talking to you why it is and why it's urgent over the next rest of this evening. Alistair McIntyre is a Roman Catholic ethicist who taught at Notre Dame, very famous, and he's written a very well-known book. He's a very committed Roman Catholic Christian, and he wrote a book on ver- on ethics. That's what he teaches, and his argument was a very interesting one, not that you care, but the con- this quote comes in the context of that. He says, we all make ethical decisions every day. For example, if a woman gets pregnant out of wedlock, does she keep that child, bring it to term, or does she abort it? You make a decision. And the decision, he says, is going to be based on what you believe about the world, what you believe to be the story of the world. Here's what he says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, making ethical decisions, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part? If the story is a story of meaningless evolution, then that child that has been, is in the the mother's womb is nothing more than an accident that you can get rid of. If there's some kind of divine providence giving meaning to history, then that child has some kind of significance, depending on what you believe. But as a Christian, that they're image of God. So you make decisions based on the story. And so McIntyre argues vociferously in some of those difficult books you can read that stories shape our ethics, but not just our ethics, the entirety of our lives. Leslie Newbegin was a, a, a missionary from India. And he spent much of his time, uh, 40 years in India, returned to England and began to write about Western culture. And when he did, he began to critique Western culture and he said, I have a new set of eyes to look at Western culture. Before I was immersed in this culture, now being 40 years in India, I see this culture in a new, fresh way. And he wrote about 20 books from the time he retired at 65 till he died in his late 80s. And those books shook, shook up the, a lot of us. He was most probably the most famous Christian from 1983 to 1990 or so, and those books were shaking us. And here's what he was arguing. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story if there is one? What is the real story of which my life story is a part? When I say, what is the real story, I'm thinking here of four different worldviews that believe their story is true. Jews, Muslims, Christians, and Enlightenment humanists that have dominated Western culture. But there is a growing movement among those people called postmodernists that say, there is no true story. All there is is a meaningless jumble of events in history and all that there is is people imposing their subjective story on the world. Christians, it's not a true story. It's imposed on the world. Muslims, it's imposed. Jews, it's imposed. Western humanists, it's imposed. Buddhists, uh, it's imposed. And they say there is no true story. This is meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. And so there is no true story. But if there is a real story, then that real story is going to shape our lives. And the question is, which of those stories, if any, are true? And it's the person of Christ that says, well, that story is the true story. N.T. Wright, a leading biblical scholar, tells us it's not the case that we're using a metaphor here that just happens to fit nicely. In other words, he says, we have, it's not just a lovely centering metaphor that works so beautifully with the Bible. He says, that's not true. He says, God created the world in this way. He created the world with a beginning, He created the world with a climactic moment where all of history is going. And he created the world in such a way that there is movement and change and that God as the ruler of history was directing history towards that goal and so that this world is created in such a way that when we say story, we're talking about the way God created the world, where it's going, and its meaning in the middle of history. And so he says this, a story is the best way of talking about the way the world actually is. This is how God made the world. This is what the world is really like. It's going towards that, and there's meaning in history, and our lives are shaped by that. Here's how Newbegin puts it. Again, this is the burden of his concern in all of his books. In our contemporary culture, he says, writing to Europeans, hear him writing to North Americans. In our contemporary culture, two quite different stories are being told. Number one, and even if you aren't aware of it, these stories are powerful in shaping. The one is a story of evolution, and of course he means here atheistic evolution. The story of evolution, of the development of the species through the survival of the strong, and the story of the rise of civilization, our type of civilization and its success in giving humankind mastery over nature. And he might have continued like he does other places through science and technology and the rational organization of our economics, politics. He could have said all that, but he doesn't. He stops there. That this story is the way Western culture has dominated nature to make a better world for themselves. The other story is the one embodied in the Bible, the story of creation and fall of God's election of a people, that's Israel, to be the bearers of his purpose for humankind, and of the one, coming of the one in whom that purpose is fulfilled. And he might have said, in the sending of a people to continue to bear that. And then this last line, when the students I used to teach worldview to in the university could articulate this even a little bit, I used to be happy because they got what I was saying. And I can think of many that did. They said, these are two different, incompatible stories. One of the biggest dangers facing the United States and other Western countries is we have often collapsed the Bible into our cultural story. And we've seen the cultural story and, the, and, and being a Christian as so closely one, Rather than seeing that the United States, Canada... And Europe is the product of a powerful humanistic uh, story that, of course, has a lot of impact of the Christian faith, and that's what makes it believable. But these stories are different. They're incompatible. They will shape our lives in different ways. And this student, these students who are coming to the university with the goal of giving a BA so they could get a better job, and of course education is good for, is important for work. That's not the point. But if their whole reason for being there is about the job they're going to get, a better paying job that will give them a much better life, then they're being shaped by an incompatible story to the one of the gospel where the story is going to shape university to give insight so that we can serve. Part of that will be for work as well. Richard Bauckham I would, I, I would call him the second leading New Testament scholar in the world. Richard Baucom has argued this. He asks well, the question, what does it mean to accept the authority of the biblical story? He says, that sounds weird. He says, if, if I go to you and say, what should I do? And you command me, I either accept your authority and I do it, or I don't accept your authority and I say, I walk away, right? I understand commanding and authority. But I say, what should I do? And you say, well, once upon a time, you tell me a story, and I say, what's this guy saying? What's he trying to tell me? And he goes on telling a story, and I'm trying to figure it out. So he's he saying, what does it mean? When the Bible tells a story, how can it have authority? What does that mean? What does that look like? And he answers in a very powerful, in a very powerful little book, he argues this. To accept the authority of this story is to enter it and to inhabit it. It is to live in the world as the world is portrayed in this story. In other words, if the, Bible, if the biblical story narrates a world in which human beings are sinful and in an image of God, then that's not just theology. That's the way human beings really are. If it narrates a world in which God's presence permeates the world, Like Paul says, in Him we live and move and have our being. If the Bible says that, then in fact God's presence does permeate the world regardless of what secularism says when it says He's not here and if He is, He's up there. In other words, the story narrates the world and what we do Sunday by Sunday is come to worship and we hear the true story and we're brought into that story and then when we leave, we're not sent out into the real world. We have been living in the real world through our worship. And now we're sent out into a false world, falsely narrated, especially through advertising and marketing and so on. A false world with the good news that the true world has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so Bachman said, it's to live in the world as the world is portrayed in this story. Now, this... I mean, I'm, going to, I'm going to open this up in a moment to bring a testimony of unbelievers who've often seen this better than believers and have rebuked them. But here's what Tom says. Are, this is a huge claim. And one of the things I hope you walk out of here with is a sense that the claim that Jesus Christ is the center of world history and his death and resurrection, and that the Bible tells the true story of the world, is one of two things outrageous and ridiculous, the most stupid claim anybody's ever made, or it's true. Those are the only two options. It's not just a nice story, because the claim that's being made is this. The whole point of Christianity, he says, he doesn't say, these are some things you should know in your discipleship that will help you. He says, the whole point. Point of Christianity is that it offers a story which is the true story, the other says of elsewhere, the true story of the whole world. It's public truth. It's not just true for Christians. It's not just true for Christians to live in that story. The mission of the church is to live in that story in the midst of the world saying, this is the true story. This is where history is going. Come Join us. Come be part of this new community that's already tasting the newness of the creation that's coming. And he's saying, This is the true story of the world. Even when the powers reject this story and say, This is nonsense, we say, We expect you to say that, of course. But we still say, Jesus has revealed the middle of the story and given us that true story of the whole world. It's public truth, truth for everybody. And one somebody has described the African-American church a number of years ago in their hymnology, and I think this is beautiful. I've never examined the claim, but this is the claim made in a book about it. They said that the African-American church used to sing, we are living in the true story of the world, and one day everyone's going to find that out. And one day, everybody is going to see that that's true. You might reject us now, but one day when they stand before Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, who's the judge standing at the end of history, they're going to see that this wasn't just true for Christians, a nice private story for them to enjoy life, that it was the true story of the whole world. And it is true for everybody. And so the mission of the church is to live in that story, announce that story, demonstrate it with deeds and saying. Come live in this story. Come receive the Spirit who's one day going to fill the entire earth. Sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't. There. This next quote, and I think I'm going to take a break after this quote. Um, And I want to give you lots of time to ask questions if you want. A Hindu who taught at a big university in India. And he was a well-known scholar of the world's religions. He's now dead. But he used to teach Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and so on. And he knew the Christian tradition very well. He actually thought it was nonsense, but he understood it. And here's what he says. I can't understand why you missionaries come to India presented the Bible to us in India as another book of religion. It's not another book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books in, of religion in India already. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible, and he uses technical terminology, but he's just saying what I've been saying simply. He says, I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history. He describes what he means. The history of the whole creation and the history of the human race. And therefore... A unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. In other words, he says, I find in your Bible the true story of the world that gives meaning to human life. That's what he's saying. And he says this, let this soak in from a Hindu. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside of it. No other religion makes such an outrageous claim. I know more about this conversation. And I know that he thought this claim was the most outrageous, ridiculous claim anybody could make. He respected the person he was speaking to. And so he's careful. He says, this is outrageous. That anybody would claim to know where the world began, where it's going, and the meaning of history that gives meaning to human life. He says, that is preposterous. And as a Hindu, you'd expect him to say that. It's ridiculous. That's absurd. He didn't believe it. He then continued on in this conversation to say something, even, I think, even more powerful when he said, I don't know why you Christians don't believe what you've got here, but he says, and even more ridiculous is that in the middle of your Bible is this man, a Jew. Five foot six, 140 pounds, beard, black hair. I don't know what he looked like. I haven't got a clue, but I'm trying to help you feel a real man, a male, a Jew, at at, at a certain date lived, sweat, lived like a human being. He said that you would believe that a man at one point in history would reveal the whole meaning of the world. This is preposterous, he believed. And to say that you know where history is going, where it began based on one man in the middle of history is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he just thought it was absurd. Can you hear Paul in 1 Corinthians 1? Paul has just spent his twi- a number of years preaching the gospel around the Roman Empire, and I'm sure Paul is going, oh, man, I preach this gospel. The Jews find it a stumbling block because no Messiah ever, ever, no Messiah ever would be crucified and then I announce this in the midst of the Romans and the Greeks, and they say, this is stupid. The word he uses in 1 Corinthians 1 is moron. This is moronic. That's, that's translated foolish. This is, this, I, think of the strongest word you can. This is stupid. The, those listening said it's a stumbling block. No Messiah is crucified. And the Greeks say this is foolishness. And what does Paul say? Paul says, I know that. I know that they believe it's foolishness and weakness that a man would be crucified. And then these are so powerful. He says, But here's what I know. In the weakness of the crucifixion, the power of God has been revealed. And in the foolishness of the cross and a man crucified, the wisdom of God has been revealed. The more I think we realize the claim we're making as Christians about Jesus the more we're going to feel no wonder people in our world have trouble believing this or maybe we're announcing such a pared down gospel it's easy to believe but the more we see how what is being said in this good news and about the story of the world and the more we feel How can this be? The more we are with Paul in 1 Corinthians feeling, this sounds foolish, this sounds so weak, but my goodness, it has transformed my life. And I see the power and the wisdom of God revealed in this man, Jesus Christ, and the power and the wisdom of God, Christ now fills the world and points us to where history is going, where it's come from, and its whole meaning. Either and I, I want to I, I hope you feel this either the claim that Jesus revealed and accomplished the meaning of universal history in the middle and that we know the meaning of the story there 's only two options, and there 's only two options, and those two options are it 's the dumbest thing anybody 's ever said. it is ridiculous or it 's true. those are the only options, and that 's why Paul probably feeling the shame in some way, said, but I'm not ashamed. I will not be ashamed of this gospel. It's the power of God for anyone who believes, and I know that. And I know that God has done this in Christ. And what this Hindu, I think, helps us see so well is how difficult and foolish it is to make this claim in any worldview, including the American worldview, if we make this claim big as it is in the Bible, how it's difficult for anybody to believe it. And the only possibility is if the Spirit of God changes our hearts, opens us up to the living Christ, and allows our lives to be changed by His Spirit, and then nobody's going to convince us that it's not true because we've experienced the converting work of Jesus Christ and His Spirit. And so this Hindu helpfully helps us feel what Paul did but it also starts to show us that this gospel that we've got is so big. It is so big. My prayer as I sat here before I I, I spoke was, God, send your spirit to fill this room. And Spirit of God, so point to Jesus Christ that he begins to fill this room. And he fills this room so big that we walk out of here saying, That's the only way to look at the world from now on. It's in the light of the radiance of Christ. I used to, I had a friend who used to say that somebody he used to listen to as a preacher, he says every time he preached, he said he felt like Jesus was filling the room. And I used to think, oh, what a beautiful description of preaching. I wish that was true of me. I was a young guy. I said, I hope that's true. I wanted that to be true of me, that when you preach Christ, this is not this little personal savior that did something just for me. That's true, but that he's so much bigger. Creator, Lord of history, revealing and accomplishing the meaning of the middle of history, final judge, the one who will usher in the new creation. That's the Christ at the center of the story. And so to say, "You believe in Jesus is huge. It's huge. It means to say, I hear the call of Jesus to follow Him, to receive His Spirit, and begin to living out that story in its fullness. Okay, let's take a break right now. Um, Fifteen minutes or so, I don't know. Do we have drinks or anything? I'm not sure of the new format here in this new setting. But uh, let's take about a 15-minute break, and if there is drinks and takes a long time to get back here, well, so be it.